0: Who you are defines how you build. This is Thought Leaders Revisited, a special summer 2020 edition of our Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series. During this summer of uncertainty, we're inviting some of the most influential past ETL speakers to join us for a series of new conversations about innovation, leadership, and especially finding opportunities in the midst of a crisis. On this episode, we're joined by Anne Miraco. Anne is co-founding partner at Floodgate, a seed-stage venture capital firm. She's also a co-sponsor of the AI Grant, a nonprofit research lab that funds work on open-source AI, and she's also a co-founding member of All Raise, a nonprofit committed to improving diversity in funders and founders.
1: I am delighted to welcome Anne Miraco to ETL. Actually, back to ETL. How are you doing this <laughs> afternoon, Anne?
2: I'm doing great, how, how are you?
1: Oh, well, I wish I had your camera and lighting, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I wanna do this in like three pastures or three parts, if you don't mind. Uh, part one is about radical innovation and exponential impact. Um, and as you know, you often talk about deeply passionate ambitious entrepreneurs and innovators and they go out and they change history. So let's talk about what it means to really change history. And what I'm hoping we do is we inspire people watching this and listening to this to to appreciate that they can do that. And wow, do we need some history to be changed nowadays. There's, you know, as we like to say at SDVP together, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And there are lots of problems that we need radical innovations for. So um, let's play a clip from 10 years ago when you spoke in the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar Series um, at Stanford. Let's play that.
2: I wanted to take a step back first to talk about the whole notion of innovation and the historical perspective of what innovation can actually do. The first example that I would bring up is the Ford Model T, which in 1908 was launched and in this time, there were only 200,000 cars in the United States. And the really amazing thing about real innovation is that it has a democratizing influence. And what the Ford Model T was able to do was it had a democratizing influence in transportation. So you went from a world that had 200,000 cars in the United States and five years later Ford was selling 200,000 cars just in that year alone. They would go on to sell millions of these cars and it went from a world where a car was $2,000 and then only 15 years later it was $200. And that kind of influence with a shift in manufacturing can have a tremendous impact on society. Our culture, our society was shaped by the fact that the working class person could drive a car.
1: Well, what a great way to start. I mean, come on, Ann. Can normal people like me really change society in that way? And and how do I identify such an opportunity?
2: Yeah, you know, I think I think the the message though, just just to start off with that message, which which is from such a much younger, optimistic view of the world that comes from a younger, optimistic me. Um, but you know, the, the message of the world needs more breakthroughs, and the world needs a better future is, was true then. You know, it's true ten years ago. But my goodness, if it isn't true today, and if if we have more polarization, if we have a bigger digital divide, if we have more healthcare problems, if we have more climate change problems, uh, we don't need incremental changes in the world. We need radical changes. And and you ask the question, you know, how can how can a normal person create these things and i i i think actually innovation doesn't just exist in silicon valley we don't have a nom- monopoly on it you know you travel to any any place in the world and you see incredible innovation and so innovation isn't just something that's that's a technical thing it's not just for engineers it's not just for stanford students it's a universal principle. It's the, the, the how do I dream of a better future and how do I bring it to, to us closer to us today rather than just hope that someone else will create it for us.
1: Well, I know something you talk about when we're working with our students together. You talk about the story of Lyft. And although Lyft is ha- has its issues right now and so on, it has been a remarkable um, success uh, it in its main competitor, Uber. So what did you see in them, for example, that uh, speaking of transportation, since we were talking about the Model T, you, what, yeah. what excited you about those founders when you were uh, the first investor?
2: Yeah, so back in 2000, I think it was 2010 is when John and Logan came to pitch Floodgate on on what was originally called Zimride. And Zimride was a platform that enabled carpooling for corporations as well as universities. And uh, the vision of the world that they actually painted um, actually describes a lot of what Lyft does today. Uh, And so this is sort of a good example of mission-driven founders who really believe in a vision of the future and, and how that that transcends different products. So, so the, the message that John and Logan came to Floodgate with in the early days was, look, we, we believe actually transportation is about to change. And the fact that we have social networks now and people can be connected to one another digitally actually implies something really fundamentally different. And, and when transportation changes, actually the world changes. And they, they demonstrated this in uh, just the United States alone. If you look at the fabric of society, you would have canals, you would have railways, and then you would have highways. And if you just look at the map of where cities developed, it was very true that waterways, tr- railways, and highways were actually the ways in which cities were created and where big cities existed, existed because of these things. And so, so their, their point was, if we can actually change the way transportation is done, we will actually have a significant impact on the economy and the way the society uh, lays out its land. And, and I thought, my goodness, what a, what a tremendous uh, vision for for what the future can be and their view, future view was not just you know we're going to enable carpooling their future view was we don't want cars to sit empty as they're going down the highway and look around you you'll you'll look at the car next to you and there's a single driver in there that means that there's all these seats that are empty and if you, if you think about it from a throughput perspective for any like operations research department or, or from a computing platform, that's a huge waste. And, and so, so what if we, we figured out a way to fill those seats, or made them a little bit more full? Um, that could actually change the way parking is done, that would change the way uh, rides are are completed. Uh, and that was the start. And to me, uh, that's the kind of the, that's the kind of founder I'm looking for is someone who paints a picture of a future that is very different from today. And it's the future that I want to see.
1: Well, thanks for expanding on that. I know you've done that with our students and it's, so I never get tired of hearing about the story of Lyft. And it's ironic that it was 2010 when you were with us in that clip. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just uh, coincidentally, but you and I are also emphasizing this year in our teaching and last year about, uh, responsibility and ethics, uh, principles, whatever word you'd like to use um, to talk about that there's more than, there's more to entrepreneurship and innovation, especially radical innovation entrepreneur, uh, and, uh, than making money. So yeah. when you, how do you view that and how does that affect your decision-making when choosing who to invest
0: in?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a really important question, uh, and I think it's one that perhaps investors don't think about often enough. Uh, and it's one that that's been pressed to the forefront because because of my role, I feel as an educator, I feel a, a real obligation to think about these things. So, the the number one thing way in which I I think about it is is going back to this notion of of a future. Um, The best entrepreneurs aren't just forecasting the future. They aren't just saying, hey, uh, this is where we are today. And incrementally, if things continue in the direction that we see, then it will become this. Rather, the, the best founders are creating a future they're building it and they're designing it. And so as an investor, one of the roles that I believe we play is really thinking through, is this a future that I want to see? Is it a future that, that is desirable, not only for me, but for society. And, uh, and so those are those are obligations that I, I think we ought to take seriously, and and one of the ways that that I I think about it is in terms of you know the future and if you're if you're designing the future, first of all, what is the type of entrepreneur that you want to work with, and I think you know, at Floodgate we have a pretty high standard for that. We we have sort of life is too short test. Um, but we also we also recognize because we're there so early that we are not just investors we're co-conspirators and if we're co-conspirators we have to make sure that that is that's a that's a relationship that we want to be in not just for the short term but for 10 15 years at a time and when you take that long view you start to realize that there are certain things that you aren't willing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there are certain visions of the future that you absolutely want to run towards. Um, And half of it is actually making sure that along the way you aren't tripped up, right? And so uh, a good example of that is actually a class that, that I ran with John Mitchell in the design school. And so in the D school, we ran this class called So You Want a Revolution, blockchain edition. And in the class, uh, students were asked to create their own, design their own blockchain. And one of the questions that we asked them was, what happens if this revolution goes wrong? And what was really interesting was a lot of these students came back with answers that had to do with lack of traction. And when they thought of the revolution not going quite right, it was just that the business didn't work out. And that wasn't at all what we meant. What we meant was, what if, what if the revolution itself that you thought you were designing got derailed in a way that you didn't anticipate?
0: Right.
2: And, and I think that's something that we should put a lot more thought into. What if the community moves in a direction that you didn't intend? What if the information that you thought you were going to keep private is no longer private? Uh, what if the data that you collected um, is no longer, you know, it's it's not kept uh, private in a way that you anticipated. So all of these things can change and morph in ways that you don't anticipate on day one when your user base is five. Uh, and so those are things that I think we should be more actively engaged in as educators, as product managers, as executives, and as investors.
1: Yeah, well, I see this changing uh in real time uh, i know uh, our colleagues who are heavily involved in the ai center at stanford this large one the human centered mm-hmm. artificial intelligence institute they are emphasizing this as much as the technology itself and i don't know mm-hmm. 10 years ago that might not have been the case so you know when you were last speaking so i'm i'm uh, optimistic about that so let's move on and by the way i I had a brain skip earlier. We do want to hear questions from the audience. So I encourage everybody listening live to us to jump on the uh, YouTube chat window and put in questions. We've got uh, production staff that's helping us uh, grab those and pop them over to us so that we can uh, do the best we can to answer questions here if we uh, you know, stop a little early. So we will do that. So. Please stick some questions on that chat window in YouTube. All right, so moving along, I, I want to build on this innovation thing. Now, let's get a little tactical. How do you actually scale something? I mean, something, let's just say it's really um, a, a great breakthrough. It's, I mean, and, and that has the chance to, of course, uh, be worthy of investment and be sustainable that way, but also have a, a positive impact. And all these, negative consequences have been at least uh, thought of or in somewhat addressed. But let's go to what some of the stuff you teach in your master's course that's so popular. It's a couple of concepts for scaling called backcasting and notion of inflection point. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, actually there's sort of three components and, and I'll go through backcasting and inflection points first. I think backcasting and inflection points is more about this this first ideation phase. So, so I think you know our friend Steve Blank, um, who is going through some hard times today with wildfires. Uh, he came in and he spoke. He he's talked a lot and taught a lot about this customer development, right? Lean startup. And uh, one of the things we've noticed is before you even get to customer development, you have a product. How do you even come up with the idea for what you ought to pursue? And so so at Floodgate, because a lot of times we are working with founders who who are extraordinarily talented and and perhaps don't have an idea, one of the areas that we we work on is what we call backcasting. And, And I think a lot of this has to do with insight development, which has to happen before customer development. And so backcasting is again, this idea that the best entrepreneurs don't just respond to a future vision, they create a future vision, they create the future literally out of nothing. And that future, when you describe it today, 10 years out, might look, you know, plausible, improbable, and maybe even impossible. And depending on that, that spectrum, uh, you actually have to Build a lot more, right? So a great example of an entrepreneur who will espouse something that sounds impossible and, and seems to time and time again uh, hit the nail is uh, Elon Musk, right? So he'll describe something that sounds insane, right? The a rocket ship that goes up, up into the air, and then like the 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 fuel canisters will will land back on Earth. Um, and it's a private company. Well, well, you would say, that sounds crazy and rather impossible. Only governments can do that. And yet he will give you the first principles of why it's possible. Um, an implausible might be, you know, Mark Andreessen when he's describing Netscape. Back in the day, the internet was a bunch of texts. It, it looked like a terminal. And he's basically creating a browser that makes the internet more accessible for all. Um, all of these you know, innovations that describe something kind of far out, uh, those are founders who are building a completely new future. And, and so what do they have in common? Well, they have an insight, usually about an inflection point. And an insight to me is an observation of something that is changing rapidly. And that inflection point usually describes something that's exponential. And it's something around an adoption, a technology shift or a regulatory shift. And that shift is creating something that has this exponential feature to it, which might mean people are suddenly changing their behavior and adopting something very suddenly telemedicine today is a really good example of that. And uh, my partner, Mike Maples, has written quite a bit about backcasting, but we think that that is through the first ingredient for venture backable, venture scale business, is you have to be riding on this exponential curve. And you have to personally have an insight about that exponential curve that is non-consensus, but right. So it is something not everyone agrees about because if everyone already observed this exponential growth pattern or this thing that's about to happen, well then, game over. There's no room for a startup. So what's your unique, secret insight that you have about something that's about to change uh, that gives you the surface area of attack? So that's that to me is uh, the backcasting an inflection points concept. The second piece is, it, this is where my class comes in, which is now that you have this insight and that you are you know what you're building, you have like sort of a hypothesis around a product. The, the big question becomes, what are you running towards? And a lot of people, when they say, I'm raising my seed investment, they're saying, I need to get to product market fit. And the the problem with product market fit is it's this really nebulous concept, and what everyone believes it means is traction. But there's no like map for how to get to traction. So a lot of people believe that it's this customer development process. Uh, but we put a little bit more rigor around that. So what what I believe product market fit is is it's actually a misnomer, because most people believe product is a bag of features. Market is sort of, you know, size of market that you do this weird exercise on where you say number of people who you could sell to times price, and that's your market. In reality, you know, product is more uh, your value proposition, the promise that you're making to your customer of why the experience with your product is going to be uh, an order of magnitude better than anything they would have expected. And so on the market side it's actually an ecosystem and it's a it's a it's your customer, it's the person who pays, it's your manufacturer, it's the distributor, it's all of the different people and companies that need to buy in to what you're doing in order for you to succeed. And what is your value proposition to all of those people? And then finally The third leg of the stool is actually your business model. How do you make money? Most people leave this to the last minute to answer. And I would say that's probably as important as your product. Because if you don't think about pricing, if you don't think about how much people will pay or how they will pay for it or how they want to find your product, then you, you haven't actually thought about the totality of your product. And so... We often say it's those three things that have to fit together. It's your value proposition, your ecosystem, and your business model. When they lock together, that's product market fit. And then you know the levers for growth.
1: We could stop right there. That's really good, Anne. And I know that people watching and listening are wishing they could be in classroom <laughs> with you, um, like I get to do. Uh, that was Awesome, let's, let's move ahead and talk about, speaking of Steve Blankin, we are thinking of him today. He, uh, he's having challenges uh, out on the coast with his home and Steve has meant so much to us at Stanford and STVP. You've worked with him early on when he became associated with us and I've just been so pleased to be his, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, air cover or something, you know his sponsor here at, at Stanford. It's been great and so we're thinking of him today. But, he, you know, he's it was his techniques with the Lean Startup Methods that uh, popularized this term pivot. So let's talk about that as well, especially in the context of what uh, we've been discussing so far. Let's play a clip from 10 years ago when you talked about something called the courage of pivoting.
2: We're looking for people who have the courage to pivot if they have to. And this notion of pivoting is really important because all the elements that I just described in a business model is a fulcrum by which you would pivot. So it might be that your customer set was all wrong, it might be that your product was all wrong, might be that your manufacturing was wrong and that you need to bring that in-house. All of these different elements of your business model are potential points of pivots. And if you decide to make a pivot, it's not an easy decision to make.
1: It's wild to think that ten years ago the word "pivot" w- had something to do with the NBA in basketball. <laughs> and basketball. It was deep that had to do with something called linear programming, which is a, it's a part of that. <laughs> so, but yeah. pivot has now become oh my gosh, politicians just to you know, be since they're in the news now this summer, um, they pivot too. <laughs> and they use that word. Yeah. I heard it the other day, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that word. So let's get serious, though. Why is it so hard to pivot?
2: Well, I think people people think of pivot in a very casual way, right? They're, they're like, think of pivot as like, well, I changed my mind, so I'm pivoting, or I'm pivoting because I, I failed and I'm giving up. The truth of the matter is, the best kind of pivots really are it's it's a move forward it's 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 a aggressive stance it's not a defensive stance Mm -hmm. and uh and the the way i've thought and this part of the reason it's so painful um the example of lift was that when they pivoted from Zimride to lift uh it it was not an easy decision it was it might in retrospect seem like an obvious decision But for a founder, you're all in on this idea, right? You're all in on idea number one. It's not just an idea that is supposed to get you somewhere else. Uh, You are giving up nights and weekends. You're giving up birthday parties that you could have gone to, date night with your spouse. um, To work on this thing, and it's like thousands of lines of code. and relationships that you've built up. And all of a sudden you're saying, you have to say to yourself on one hand, this is, is not what I said it was going to be. It is not the next billion dollar idea. It will not get me to the finish line. And yet we have learned something that we actually have conviction on where we are willing to scrap this, scrap all of the blood, sweat and tears to, to move in a totally new direction. And so it's partially the recognition that we were wrong, uh, which I think is really hard to do. And it requires a certain level of humility. Um, and then the second is that we're, even if this thing was kind of working, that we're willing to give it up to move whole hog in this new direction. And so like with Lyft, they, they actually had traction on their platform. They had millions of dollars of revenue that they had to say, you know what? It's not gonna get us to billions of dollars of revenue. And so we are willing to shut that down to move aggressively into something that we kind of believe is the thing.
1: Well, wow! I would love to talk more about pivoting, but I am watching the time. I had a chance to experience that early in my career. I was early at, uh, uh, during the formation of Symantec Corporation, and we were funded as an AI company. We, there were semantics, like natural language processing, but then we pivoted to being an antivirus company. Uh, Uh, company. We didn't call it pivoting, but it was all the things you just described. So this is not a new phenomenon, especially in tech entrepreneurship and innovation, but uh, given the speed of everything now, you don't have, you know, it. we we had a couple of years to pivot, not, you know, a couple of months.
2: Yeah. It's incredible.
1: Yeah. So I look back. All right. Let's, let's talk about uh, all raise. Can we do that? And then we'll do questions. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about always. What is it?
2: So All Raise is an initiative that started a, a few years ago um, really with uh, Aileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures uh, when she sent out an email to a bunch of uh, female investors saying, hey, we're I'm just tired of all of this. Everything is sort of in the middle of the Me Too movement um, and feel like we can actually do some things to, to create change and create pressure for change, too, um, not only for funders because we were seeing it within investors, but but really for founders as well. And uh, so a bunch of us got together for a dinner, and then out of that dinner were a bunch of initiatives that, that started up. Uh, at first, I was working on a dinner series to encourage operators to become VCs. And so I would uh, gather a bunch of operators who... Uh, Were great candidates for being venture capitalists, and then help them negotiate as they were going through their interview process with venture capital firms, and then uh, get them into these positions. And so we had a number of folks who collaborated, and then also were giving each other data uh, so that they they understood what the negotiation process would look like, and it helped sort of grease the wheels on on that front. Um, I later joined another initiative called. Founders for Change, where we were uh, getting founders to talk about the fact that they wanted change not only within their management team, but also within their boardrooms and also on their cap table. And I believe that 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 initiative was really, it was led by Jenny Lefcourt from Freestyle Capital, uh, and I joined it. And um, the thing that I thought was really important about that was when really hot companies would go back to venture capital firms and say, I'm not going to take capital from you. In fact, I'm not going to meet you for a pitch meeting because you are not you, your partnership doesn't represent the partnership that I want to be associated with. Uh, that actually really moved the needle, it created fear. Uh, there was a New York Times article that talked about this. Um, and, and we realized that. Um, it was going to become a movement. And, and what, we, what we didn't want was it just to be sort of fear-oriented, but from a capitalist standpoint, what I loved was, as founders talked about it, the, the VC firms realized that in order to have the best deal flow, in order to have the access to the best founders, their decision process needed to change and the people around the table needed to change. Uh, and so we started to see a significant movement amongst many of the VC firms that were all male to then include uh, new general partners who are women. We believe that this is just a starting point. And obviously diversity is not just gender, but many other things. And, and so um, it, it's an initiative that's really close to my heart because I believe that by finding diverse voices a lot of what we think about innovation the way we think about innovation can change from be, being disruption uh, within an industry to how do you create abundance for the world
1: well thanks and we have some uh, amazing questions that have been asked and uh, i'd like to go to those right away is that yeah, all right for you please. all right cool yeah. I, I, there's a number of them uh, we touched the nerve evidently with these issues of principles and values and ethics, which of course makes uh, you and I very happy because that's what we're emphasizing these last couple of years. so let's talk about this uh, let, let me grab a couple of them and then you know feel free to combine because there's a couple that are very close. One is some innovations lead to increases in inequity. How can mm-hmm. and should aspiring entrepreneurs design radical innovations that improve the lives of the most vulnerable in our society and i I'd, I'd say that is a good one to combine with ventures use many performance metrics linked to finances. What KPIs or metrics should entrepreneurs use to make ethics a priority? I mean, once the aspiration and then once the, well, okay, how are we going to take action? Would you comment?
2: Yeah. I, I love these questions. Cause I think these are, these are ones that we are actually grappling with today. Right. And I think it's ones that that I don't have a clean answer for. I wish I did, but um one of the things that I do believe, I do think that innovation is not opposing forces with uh, creating more opportunity for everyone, and so so the the notion of abundance is something that can be tied to technology. It does not just need to leave people behind. And you you see this actually in developing countries, the ways in which mobile phones has unleashed the ability for almost everyone to participate in the economy. Uh, I also believe that you know by providing knowledge to a vast majority of the world, you actually start to create opportunities for equality. Uh, and so, so, so I think that, that they aren't opposing forces. Part of what we need is we actually need more voices around the table. And this is why I'm very passionate about uh, diversity for funders and founders. Uh, the reason you need it for funders is because if a founder with a, with a different idea uh, comes to an investor, the funder actually needs to, to recognize that and they need to to be able to have empathy for these ideas and to believe and know that they're large ideas. We saw this actually with the gender divide. Um, Pinterest, when it was first fundraising, met with a lot of opposition because a, a lot of the, the partners at these VC firms would say, well, I have to go home and ask my wife. Well, like. The wife doesn't have a, a you know, decision vote at the partnership table, uh, and so, so that doesn't seem like the right way to go about it. You need to have a woman who understands that viewpoint at the table. And, and when you look at the, the really vastly changing demographics of the United States alone, and the, the way in which the wallet will change rapidly in the future, you know that the voices at the table need to change for innovation. And so, so I would say that's that's the number one thing I would I would think about. The number two thing, when you talk about performance metrics linked to finances, uh, I completely agree with this. And this is one of the things that um, I really struggle with because, especially when you when you go public and you have uh, people who are really trading on, on a short-term time frame, all they're thinking about is sort of whether or not you're going to be able to hit your mark in the next quarter. And, and so it completely takes out this notion of long-term development and where do you invest. Uh, it also only rewards efficiency, uh, which I think is at odds with society in some level. So the, the example I always point to on this basis is when, when I was a kid, I used to go uh, help out my grandmother at her office supply store in Kanazawa, Japan. And, and this is a relatively small town, not, not a huge town, but um, they had someone who worked for their, their storefront for, for many years. I think she'd worked there for 30 years. And was this employee like the very best employee, like the most efficient person who could work for the the company? Certainly not. Certainly not. They could have hired many more young people who would been cheaper, probably faster, could have done a lot more things. But my grandmother had incredible loyalty to this woman. Uh, She knew her family situation. She knew she needed the income. And she knew that this person was very hardworking. And so so my grandmother was absolutely adamant that she keep this one employee. And and I think about that example a lot because you know corporate America is not set up for that. And so how do you think about societal impact of keeping an additional employee? How do you how do you think about loyalty? How what are the right ways to think about um, developing a long-term view of a company? Eric Reese is actually working on a lot of this with the long-term stock exchange to really rethink uh, the short-termism of, of public uh, company trading.
1: Yeah, and we've got a project underway regarding uh, what's a, what are some potential ethical KPI, me- mechan- or KPIs, period, that could be used to track progress. Um, so we're looking forward to working on that and I'm sure there's, there's yeah. a lot of great stuff will be coming up. Here's you've been talking you've been addressing this question, but I'm combine kind of it with another one. It says that as an educator, which you are as well as an influencer and a venture capitalist, what's your vision for the next generation of innovators and entrepreneurs? So that's kind of a you know meta topic that you've been touching on. but I like to this combine it with this one. What do you consider as good teamwork and effective knowledge sharing? Are there lessons on these topics that you want? all founders to internalize, because that is a theme across all STVP. I know you've embraced it ever since you were a teaching assistant <laughs> with us back uh, during your PhD years about the notion of teamwork and entrepreneurship. It is not a solo sport, as we like to say, it is a team sport. So how does that tie? What? 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 Why is teamwork so important to uh, um, the vision that you've been talking about?
2: Yeah, I... I have seen this time and time again, which is um, the beauty of teamwork is you actually magnify other people. uh, And so people become better. uh, And the work actually improves when you work in high performing teams. Uh, And, and, you know, the the thing that I think is the most important to think through when you are in a, a high performance team. And I think like the org uh group at in MSNE has studied this quite a bit, but a lot of it has to do with giving people agency. Mm-hmm. Uh and I found this true within Floodgate. We have a very small team um to really large organizations. Uh JPL has always been seen as one of these really great organizations that runs really fast and is able to make great decisions. NASA, like all of these like uh, high-tech government organizations that, that run for 20 30 years these projects how do they do it? Well it turns out that um, you give these groups a, a lot of agency. they know what the, the objective is. And you give them the choice of how to do it. Uh, and so, so they aren't thinking about what are the, the blockers, but how do I how do I remove the blockers? Uh, and the the way we we talk about it at Floodgate, we say truth over tribalism. What does that mean to me? Um, in every decision, I, I'm seeking out the truth. And I'm seeking out the right answer. And I am I know because of my experience that, that truth does not exist based on hierarchy. So just because someone's the oldest person in the room or has the biggest title or the fanciest degree, that doesn't mean they have truth. Uh, in fact, it might be the youngest person in the room. It might be the person who's closest to the data. It might be the person who's actually operated something in the field those are the people who might actually have the right answer. And and so, so if you operate based on that, you would want to find that person who has the right answer instead of saying, I have it because of who I am. Uh, And I've found that the best operating teams operate that way. They have this fluidity to it um, that I think is really important, and that comes back to this whole concept of knowledge management and knowledge sharing, which is that, you know, you want to be curious, and so uh, there's this whole concept of the idea maze that uh who used to work at Andreessen Horowitz, he he's written about this in the past, of people who are great entrepreneurs traverse this idea maze. They know where the trapdoors are they know the hidden tunnels, uh, they know the history of what's happened in their space. Uh, and they, they, they can tell you more about the problems and solutions that have happened already and could happen in the future uh, because they've thought about it. Uh, so knowledge management and, and teams and how they operate and sharing information, especially in a world like where we live right now with COVID, Uh, becomes tremendously important. And so, you know, it's it's a space that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I think there will be a huge business built on enabling this uh, in a more seamless manner. I don't think it's easy to do today. How do you find out what is in Tom's brain? Or how do you figure out the expert on a topic why within your company or in the world? It is very, very hard. And so I do believe that there's room to grow in this space. I think there's big companies to be built. Um, and, and when those companies are built, teams will operate better.
1: Well, we come back and let's do another ETL just and talk of just about that. But I want to finish on this and I apologize to everybody. We have so many great questions here, but I've got to take advantage of this. You you know, you mentioned, uh, you invest in companies that would support, uh, to, you know, that you'd like to sort of create a future that you'd want to live in. I like the way you phrase that, and I've heard you say that many times. But you're a Stanford and Yale grad, you're on the board of trustees of Yale right now, and you've been involved in all the incredible decisions going on reacting to the, the you know these, these, these uh, events that have uh, transpired here in 2020. Um, you are so kind to give us so much of your time to teach actually in our classrooms or online with us. So, um, since you're investing so much time here in education, what's the future of higher ed? And uh, all in a few minutes. (laughs) Yeah. But you're looking to share connection. And here's why I want to ask you. You're also an incredible parent. You and your husband are just amazing for your three children and we get to know them because you always invite us and the students over for dinner, I miss those. Um, So, what do you want your kids to see when they grow up and go to college?
2: Yeah, and so I, I have one kid who's, you know, eight years old and dreams of being a scientist someday. And one of the things that that um, I'm I'm still bullish on, and part of the reason I spend so much time at these institutions of higher ed is that I think they are embattled. And I think a lot of people have lost trust in in these institutions and yet when you peel away what they do, there is absolute incredible, uh, incredible research that happens that you can't put money on, right? And so you can't put a price tag on the 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 dedication of some of these scientists, the the work that they do. Um, or, or the research that they complete. And some of it is not even in science, right? It's it's in the liberal arts. and And you have to ask the question, do these things have value? And I'm going to say a thousand times yes. And without the type of higher ed that we have, without a research institution that doesn't care about commercialization, that doesn't care about getting rich right like i know so many professors at stanford and at yale who if they spent their time at a hedge fund or if they spent their time commercializing their research and trying to make an extra buck they could be gazillionaires right and and yet instead they choose to try to make a dent in society and in the knowledge space and so that's why I spend so much time in higher ed, because I do believe that there's a space for that kind of elite research, that we should be uh, so privileged to provide, provide money for that. Um, but then when we turn to education, I, I do believe that there's lots of different ways in which you can be educated. And I don't think that higher ed, the four-year college model is the only way i believe it is one way and it is a very important way in which certain students can be educated but the truth of the matter is that there's lots of different ways in which people can make a dent in society and it's not just through scientific research or becoming an engineer or becoming a historian there are lots of other ways in which people can create real businesses or real services, and you know, I, I think about actually my daughter, who's really over COVID, taken up being a chef. So she loves cooking, and she loves uh, all of the elements of what that might mean. And when I look at the skill set she's trying to gain there, um, and whether or not that's meaningful in the world, I think it is. And uh, and and so so. I think this worldview that there's only one way to to accelerate your career and your life through a four-year institution is broken. And so I, I, I want to be a part of that solution. I don't think it means tearing down these institutions because there's a place for that. But I do think it's building up opportunities for everyone And for for the the different, I don't know, superpowers that people have, uh, making those things come alive, I think that's our obligation to our future generations.
0: The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.